0: Welcome back to Creative Chit Chat with me, Ryan McLeod. This week, I've got a really good friend of mine, Kate Saunderson. She's a user researcher for the Scottish Government. She lives in Dundee, but commutes down to Edinburgh for that. Uh, We had an amazing chat around her journey so far, how she deals with a commute in her everyday life, and a really interesting discussion around the, the idea of success and how you measure that. hope you enjoy it.
1: Uh, So I'm a user researcher uh, with the Scottish Government and very much what I do is about working with design teams and policy teams to define problems. So it's looking at the double diamond, so with the first diamond being what is the problem and the second diamond being what is the solution taking people back from solutionizing into asking who is the user for this product or service what do they need how do we understand what the problem is for them and then how do the constraints of policy technology and um, investment help us define a problem that we can begin working on to move forward
0: The concept of user research is relatively new and it's something that comes into, as you said, the the first diamond where it's sort of defining the problem. Mm -hmm. So is it a particularly hard sell to get people to appreciate the value within user research?
1: I think it depends where you are. We're in a really fortunate position that the Scottish government is committed to putting people at the centre of the service design and delivery of their public services. So they've committed to that. They are wholesale bought into reshaping how citizens, how users uh, design, develop and deliver public services. So for my role just now, it's probably the easiest place to do user research in the sense of, It's been bought in at a very high level, Um, but it's still very hard to do user research on the day-to-day basis because working in collaborative teams, you know, you're always... Everyone's got a different push on where we should be. So I'm very much in the first diamond of problem, identifying problem definition, but a lot of people are naturally drawn to solutions. Mm. So you are engaging, collaborating with people that want to get to the answer, want to get to the solution. So on a leadership level, user research is on the table, but on a practical project, day-to-day, engaging people with it, trying to fit in timelines, working in an agile manner, which is all about moving to solutions, it's a lot tougher. And not because people don't believe in it, because I would say in my workplace, the majority of the people are very bought into the idea of Putting users at the centre of service design, but the practice it's just—it's just harder.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, I suppose it's a, a lot less tangible than creating those outputs and those mm. products. I mean, I think what I do is much more involved in the second diamond than that. Mm. It's all about the production of it. And although there is the, a phase of of research and mm. the sort of user experience type stuff at the beginning, I often have clients mm. come to me who ask for a, a certain thing so they'll ask for or they'll say I need X or I need Y as in I need an app or I need a website mm-hmm. and I often have to step them back and say okay well why and what is it that we're actually trying to solve here what's, what's the problem um, so I think that's probably similar to mm-hmm. to what you're talking about as well
1: yeah if we if we don't understand what the problem is how can we know that the solution we do move forward with is right? And if we don't know that that solution is right, then we might design the solution really well. (laughs) But if it doesn't meet the problem, then it's useless. Mm. And whether you're doing that for a client or whether you're doing that for citizens of Scotland, that is a problem because it's a waste of money, it's a waste of time. And... A lot of people want to act, a lot of people want to do stuff and research can sometimes feel a bit like but we already know the answer and you know sometimes people do but sometimes people don't and I think for me I was thinking about why why do user research and it's a toss up between if we don't do it people will naturally design for themselves which if you look at digital Sector. A lot of what I see is white males, thirty to forty years old. I'm not got anything against them, but they have a certain lived experience and a certain way of knowing the world. And if you design for that, whether it's the type of technology, um, how people engage with technology, or the assumptions of access people have to technology, then you're excluding a lot of people. And um, the other thing. That for me, I can't decide which one's worse is that people begin designing on assumptions of who others are and what they need based on that experience. So they say, okay, we have these user needs and we know people know this and you say, well, how do you know that? It's like that... because I know <laughs> you like, okay well talk me through like what what did you do to develop that understanding? Oh, I just know that I know that um, someone who's caring, for a partner will need to know the finances of this benefit. How do you know? Because they do. You know, and it's these assumptions can get put into thought cycles that, as they go forward over time, become facts. And that can be dangerous as well. So, the why we do it is about asking questions of saying, What do you know? How do you know it? And is that robust? And if it is robust, then great, let's move forward. Let's design it. Let's make a change in the world that really benefits someone.
0: Let's take a bit of a step back Mm -hmm. um, and go through your journey to to where you are just now. Obviously, we met at university, so studying interactive media design, but have taken very different paths as everyone in the class did. (laughs) But yeah, because you give us a little bit of insight into what your journey has been like.
1: The course was amazing and it was really interesting and it was about design and interactions and how people engage. And, you know, we've got, had a lot of collaborative projects, you know, like design a phone without a screen and all these interesting things. I was surrounded by talented people, but I never really felt again that I was excelling and it wasn't until my fourth year that I engaged with this idea of design research, and that actually an output of design can be understanding or can be a thought or an insight, and that you don't have to go all the way through to making something. And that was a big turning point for me. So from my four-year project, that led on to another uh, course that was at Duncan of Jordanstone called uh, Design Ethnography. So I did my masters there in. And it was there actually that I just, it was this melting point for me. It was, um, we had a great year. So we had, it was like a complete cultural infusion. We had like four people from America, uh, three Scottish people, an Irish person, four Indians. And there was something to do with the mix of people. Our chorus leader, Kat Macaulay, the challenges that she set, that just challenged a lot of my thinking, challenged a lot of, the way that I saw the world or understood the world, it challenged how I knew stuff, like, I just, before I just knew stuff, and it was like, well, how do you know? And it goes back to that idea of challenge, what what are you assuming? What is that assumption? How are you challenging it? How do you understand that? Can you view this in a different way by engaging with existing research that people have done or going out, engaging with the world, engaging with people so they can challenge your preconceptions? And... Yeah, I would quite honestly say I think that year turned things for me. And then from there, I was really fortunate that I got the opportunity to stay on and do some teaching. So I started teaching on the Masters. And in going forward, I started teaching on the Interaction Design and Product Design undergraduate courses. So I was engaging with a lot of the learning that I'd taken on around problem definition, asking questions, how to do research within the design process, you know, and engaging with this idea of what teaching was, what research was. Uh, I started a PhD and I was there for around three, three and a half years and starting onto this journey in academia and then there was a bit of a sudden stop um, because the master's course that I was working on due to changes in direction of the university ceased to exist. So Kat McCauley, who was heading that up, stopped working there and went on to a new job. And I was at a bit of a turning point. I I had an amazing job. I had an amazing kind of start of a PhD that I was going and surrounded by amazing people. And I could continue on that path or I could say, have I taken everything that I can from this experience and do I go in a different way? And for me, a lot of reflection, but I'd gone from being taught to teaching and I wanted to do the doing. I wanted to know that when I was teaching people and setting them in a direction that it actually worked. I wanted to see it working. Mm-hmm. And that, it was a hard decision, and, but it was the decision that led me away from teaching and research Although I'm still doing research, it's a lot more practical Mm -hmm. and so I left the university and then was fortunate enough, applied for a job at the Scottish Government and continued working with Kat, who I'd been working with and taught by, but we were now in a new situation uh, with and taking our thinking in a new direction.
0: Cat seems to be a, a bit of a common denominator across mm. quite a few years of your life, and I think there are certain people that you cling to mm-hmm. because they have amazing qualities. Yeah. So yeah, what are the reasons that that cat had that effect on you, and that you've sort of followed followed her along your journey as well?
1: Yeah, I I, I reflect on this a lot because I think initially I was just amazed by her, like she's. A really big personality she has really big ideas and she showed me you know that sort of female role model really um, of where and how I could work what I could achieve you know it was just a different way of being for me um, and then at that point when I left the university I did a lot of thinking again of you know with mentors because um, I see her as a mentor there's always the point when you need to forge your new path and I was like do I stay on she's gone on to new things or is there more that I want to learn from her with her and I just decided that we have struck on something really interesting Uh, this idea of whatever you want to call it, design research, design ethnography, user research, this idea of bringing understanding of people, bringing their experiences into design process to make change. And I'm really passionate about that, and she's passionate about that. And we also have other interests that align, so this idea of kindness, kindness in the workplace. How do you work with people? How do you exist with people? Um, And so I just decided that, There was more that we had to do together, and I wanted to do that with her. So yeah, uh, she's a big, in my life, yeah, she's a big part of it, I would say. And I think you don't really think about those relationships. Like, when you grow up, you think a lot about personal relationships, romantic relationships. She's a big relationship in my life, and it's based in my professional sphere, in my workplace, but it is but I don't really differentiate work from the rest of
0: So you said that that taking this job um, with the Scottish Government was a turning point. Mm. I suppose initially because it was in a whole other city. Yes. So that adds a commute from Dundee to Edinburgh four days a week mm. or thereabouts. You want to understand a little bit about how you how you deal with that.
1: It's tough, but worth it. So it's tough in the sense that door-to-door, probably it works out at around a four-hour commute per day and uh, by the time you take every step in it. Fortunately, the place I work, Scottish Government, are really have really strong kind of um, commitments to their employees. So I do compressed hours, so that means I do a full-time job over four days. Uh, so I take the train so I can work on the train. But I think commuting has made me a lot more organised to the extent which was a big learning curve for me because I used to walk 10 minutes to work. So <laughs> to suddenly lose four hours of your day it's small things like I lay out all my clothes the night before. I have a work uniform. So I have. I usually wear black jeans, black boots and some sort of top and jacket. I prefer pockets if possible because with my work, uh, the stereotype is Sharpies and post-it notes and it's very true. So I like to have pockets. So yeah, so I lay out all my clothes out the night before. I make my food the night before so that when my alarm clock goes off, I get up, wash my face, sit down and have a breakfast. Because it's really important to me that you're not just rushing out the door because otherwise if you're commuting, you would always be rushing. You'd be rushing for the train in the morning, you'd be rushing for the train at night. And I think even though it's a long commute, you have to still see it as a flow to the day where you can have you in it. And so for me, a big part of that is having breakfast. So sit down, have breakfast, have a cup of tea, and then around half six, then there's normally the rush to brush teeth, get dressed, pull everything on and then get to the station. But the commute, again does work for me it's not always easy over winter I talk about having my winter commute so I often stay one or two nights in Edinburgh and um, I'm able to do that again because I can be away from home so that really works and it just gives me a bit of headspace during the week um, but yeah commuting has taught me to be organised it's taught me to think about asking your organisations for different ways of working It's taught me to be a lot more organised in work, so I need to think about what I can do in the move, what I need to do face-to-face, and it's made me reflect on, is this job worth it? You know, if I am spending time away from home, spending time away from friends, spending time away from my partner, if I am... Putting put the added stress, because it is stressful, to commute. Do I do I really want to do this job? And that's something that I reflect on quite a lot. And it's still coming back, yes.
0: So I want to go a little bit into the, the work-life balance mm-hmm. and how you make that work. Because I know you, you do four days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that you set up right from the outset with that.
1: So initially I worked part-time four days a week, okay. um, which I did because I was in a position where I could afford it, and then I moved on to compressed hours, which is five days over four days, um, but yeah.
0: So yeah, in terms of that work-life balance and losing those, well, in better common losing <laughs> those four hours per day, mm-hmm. um, how do you make that work for you?
1: I'm always trying to hack my days, like always, um, between summer and winter. So summer is a lot easier to do it because it's later, sorry, it's brighter during the night. So you can hmm. come back to Dundee and normally get home about seven, half seven. And it's still bright, so you can feel like you can still do stuff outdoors. Where in winter, because it gets darker earlier, um, it's a lot tougher. Um, I've recently also, as well as this job and just trying to have a life I really taking on fitness is something that I'm trying to prioritise and uh, so in summer it was okay because I could go out and jog after work but I'm not comfortable doing that in the winter so I've just joined the gym at work which then means that I'm looking at new ways to set up my day and um, but day-to-day it looks different so when I know that I have a really busy week so if I've got a lot of workshops or if I have interviews basically anything that is very people-intensive I choose to stay in Edinburgh so um, and I have two options so I can stay with my sister who stays there but I also have a kind of Airbnb that I stay at and again it's largely I reflect on why am I staying there if it's because I've got a really busy day and I just need to sleep I'll stay at the Airbnb because I can just go and sleep and not have to interact but if it's just that I want to I stay a bit longer at work to get something finished and then I'll choose to stay with my sister because then I can socialise and engage with her. So, yeah, it changes day by day, week by week.
0: So we've got to the point where we're both now five years out of university, Mm. had very different careers up to this point. How would you measure success? And would you say that you you have been or you are successful
1: mm, that's a really interesting question and I think it goes back to something we were discussing earlier which is about choices and decisions um, and working and growing as a people and I I, I kind of I think I mentioned earlier I don't believe in work-life balance and I don't really believe in a career either because I think we're just people doing things um, and I think it's very easy to when you come out of university to just try and be the best straight away and try and get status um there's an amazing blog post I love which is talks about collecting rocket fuel and it says to you you know if you were to retire at 62 how long do you have left and if I was to retire at 62 I have another 33 years we were discussing it you said if we're lucky enough to retire at 75 so if I retire at 75 I've got never 45 years of working not even been alive that long you know that's I don't know whether that's exciting or horrifying you know um but what he talks about is um the idea that for the first 15 years of your career just just live just take on experiences just you know develop relationships with people try new things you know develop your visual communication skills, develop how you engage with people, develop how you work side by side with people and develop how you turn up at work every day, you know, because that can be really hard and I think it's really easy to take on the measures of success that we have in education so measures of success in education is normally you get the A or you're top of the class um. And you've got to kind of, a bit like a snake, you've got to get rid of that measurement skin when you leave education, because if you take that attitude forward, you'll just fail, because um, you'll always try to do the right thing, but you can't actually control what the right thing is, because we don't have set assessment criteria in real life. You know, each of the projects I work on in my workplace have different measurements of what's successful mm-hmm. um, and so what I'm trying to do is just give myself a bit of a breather and you know my first job was amazing. I got to be a lecturer at a very young age and you know without a PhD many people would view that as success um, I took on this role as a user researcher (laughs) my dad actually said oh if you do that you sound like one of those people that stand with clipboards on a street you know (laughs) so I think I try not to be bothered by job titles I try not to be bothered by where you're situated I mean it doesn't always work but I just try and I go back to this idea that if I've got 15 years of working to just try and find out what I'm good at and if I go back to the idea that talent isn't enough, like, you know, you st- we saw a lot of good people in our course and we we meet a lot of people that are really talented. but And I think it's those people that take that talent and then just put the time in and just put the time in again and again and again that move forward. And not everybody has to do it by the time they're 25. You know, when you look on Twitter and you see people that, our our age and our CEOs of two different companies, I'm always a bit sceptical rather than envious. And I'm like, hmm, okay. Um, So, yeah, so I just try and take a step back and if I'm either worrying about not being good enough or if I'm worrying about not being where I thought I would be, I just say, you're just exploring just now. You're just putting the time in. And then when, if I go by this scale you know when i'm 40 i can figure out what i'm good at when i was 20 40 was well old and now it's just around 10 years away if the last 10 years are anything to go by the next 10 years will fly by and when i'm 40 i can decide what's the change that i want to make in the world what ambition am i going to set and who am i going to do that with and then maybe i'll spend 15 years and trying to make that happen. And then I think well, something that's not often talked about, and is maybe why I think I work so well with Kat, is this idea of succession. You know, so when you get a point into your career, who's going to take your work forward, or who's going to take your ideas forward, or who's going to continue what you started? Um, who are you going to teach? Who are you going to mentor? How are you going to help? take forward what you've spent the last 30 40 years creating um, so yeah that's what I try and go back to is instead of a career I just ask myself what am I working on, how am I growing what choices am I making what decisions am I making and where I am right now have I got everything from this experience is there more to get and if there's not more to get, then maybe I should think about moving on.
0: I think there's, I've got a, a theory of control, if okay. you like. Um, and it really helped give me a, a sort of sense of perspective. And so you're born and then you get to the age of four years old and you have absolutely no control. You're learning the absolute basics of being a human. Then you go through primary school, secondary school. It's compulsory, it's, it's set, and we're really lucky to have that in this country. So you get to 16, you have a choice um, to stay on and, or go out into the world. And then if you do stay on, you get to 18. And in my case, I made the decision to go to university. So there was another sort of four or five years. So I've got to the age of, of 22 or 23, having only really made one serious life-changing decision, which mm-hmm. was to go to university. And I was only, I mean, everyone's only really given full control of their life when they hit 18. You can get married, you can have sex, you can drink, and you can you can do anything that you want. But to get to the point where you've had as much control as time where you had no control and a set path, you have to get to 36. So I've still got seven years to actually get there. Really, this part of my life is only a small chunk, and... To measure success in that is, is really difficult, I think. But everyone strives on success. Mm-hmm. And we like to put people on pedestals and say, these are the great people and they are amazing and this is what they're doing. But often that's just a snapshot of their life. And, and under the skin, they're working really hard to make it work, to keep mm-hmm. it going, to keep on their, their own path. And we often put that gloss on it, that shine, and you see lists appearing everywhere, like the top 30, under 30, and you know, all this sort mm-hmm. of nonsense that just I mean, makes people read blog posts. and yeah, It's a bit of clickbait here and there. But yeah, the, the idea of success is somewhat fickle, I think.
1: I think it's fickle, and it doesn't account for curveballs. So uh, you talk about actually being able to make decisions, um, but also what happens to you you know the unexpected and um i don't think it also accounts for the variables of measurements of success like how can we actually measure success across people across professions and um and who who's who's deciding because the people that are making those lists are the owners and i think that's really interesting where social media is beginning to disrupt that and um so one of the I love Instagram, it's one of the main social media things that I use and a tag that I'm looking at a lot just now is called See the 67 and it's about 67% of females in America are a size 14 and above yet they are not represented visually in media whatsoever and so there's this brand that is pushing to have more body positive imagery and plus size people online being seen and i think that's the sort of design disruptions that are beginning to happen which are really interesting but it goes back to that idea of success measurement Mm -hmm. of you know what is the criteria of success for females that should be seen in fashion and who decides that and i think social media in some ways, is beginning to have an avenue where people can rewrite the success criteria and rewrite um, the outcomes.
0: And it's also, I feel social media is a great way to, especially Twitter and the way that it's set up, that you can access people who have or perceive to have success mm-hmm. and you can have a conversation with them mm-hmm. quite openly, um, which is an amazing thing that if you said that 10, 15 years ago, people would have thought you were nuts that you mm-hmm. could just message any celebrity outright or any creative or any professional and just ask them a question, just Mm -hmm. straight off the bat. It it seems a bizarre concept that would never work, but it's so successful. Mm -hmm.
1: And I think your point around the gloss and sheen of people's lives, I think more and more people are beginning to show what's underneath and beginning to show the other side of it. Um, So the rise in mental health anxiety is one of the things that is coming out a lot of the amount of people that are successful but are struggling. So Will Young drew out of um, Strictly Come Dancing due to anxiety disorder. And I think... I mean, that's a very kind of public uh, celebrity view, but I think on every level, if you go through social media, more people are talking about this is my life, but also there's this other things, you know, so there's a lot of real-world snapshots of messy households. You know, anything that just shows that life is tough. Like, sometimes just getting out of bed and turning up at work is enough. You know, sometimes it's not about being your best self at work, it's just being at work. (laughs) Some days I'm on it and I feel really proud of when things come together and we really push the, the boundaries of what is possible to do a user research sometimes for me my success is just getting on the train going to work and being there for the full day and I think day-to-day success can fluctuate mm.
0: so day-to-day you, you have to interact with a, a lot of people <laughs> yeah um it's very sort of knitted into your job would you describe yourself as an extrovert or an introvert?
1: Oh, I'm most definitely an introvert. And um, there's this book, um, Quiet, by Susan Cain that I read, maybe. I can't remember when it came out. It must be out a few years now. When I read it, the world just started to make sense. and Because I always thought introversion, extroversion, I didn't know much about it, but I thought it was about confidence. But it's actually about where you get your energy. Um, if you're extroverted you tend to get your energy a lot more from being around people whereas if you're introverted you tend to get drained by people and um, you can be a very confident introvert or a shy introvert or you can be a confident extrovert or a confident introvert Um, but I definitely relate to being an introvert which makes it really tough since I commute, since I do user research which is about working with teams but also working with people Um, and I mean this weekend is a great example we just had a friend's wedding and I had people staying with us from Friday to Sunday and we were socialising Friday night Saturday Sunday and I had one of the best weekends but I also have a lot of stuff (laughs) happening at work just now so on Monday I needed to be on my top game but I was just mentally exhausted and I it was really tough so then on the Tuesday, I was like, I'm going to go for a swim at lunchtime. No matter how busy the day gets, I'm going to take an hour out of my day. I'm going to take my lunch hour and go for a swim. And I had 30 minutes in the pool. And in the afternoon, I could just engage with people again. And um, I'm learning a lot more about myself and... um managing myself and managing my time with other people another small hack is (laughs) it sounds really odd I just got noise cancelling bluetooth headphones for work and it's amazing because you can put them on visually they're quite big so people can see you're wearing headphones as well as noise cancelling Um, they've got no wires so I can just like not have to worry because I move around a lot with my work and it's just these small ways of having time to yourself or space for yourself within public spaces and um, my office is all office my office is all open plan Um so being around other people being seen in the office but having a small private space for me that i can just block out people so that when i do need to and want to engage with them i can wholly engage with them but when i'm absolutely worn down by people, I can just retreat, I can recharge my batteries and I can just get something done. Um, And for me, I think understanding being an introvert has allowed me to begin to design and shape my life and ask for what I need. Um, But also it's allowed me to see that what I perceived as weakness um, is actually a strength, Like, because I can decide how and when I engage with people I can say no. <laughs> if my if I'm looking at my time and saying, OK, if I go to that, then I'm not going to be my best self or I'm not going to be able to contribute, then I make a decision of, do I go, do I not go, do I send someone else? Things like preparations, notes, writing things down. So one thing I learned that um, if I need to say something, I like to, to almost prototype it. So I like to get my thoughts out. I find it very hard to just say what I think. I need to have an intermediary whether it's having a conversation with a colleague first or writing something down so that I've almost prepped mm. Um, When I first started working with Kat, um, it really confused me because she would say all this stuff and I would try and track it all down and um, I would maybe deliver on 10% of it and she would be like, oh my gosh, this is amazing and I'd be like, oh it's only 10% of what you asked for. And it took me about a year to understand that she's quite extroverted, but she also speaks to think, whereas I'm introverted and I think before I speak. So we're at opposite ends of the spectrums on how we think, how we engage with others, how we draw energy from people. And I think that understanding of my relationship with her also feeds into how I design situations within my work. So whether that's a workshop or whether it's a team meeting or whether it's standing up on the wall and talking through something, I'm quite engaged with the idea that people think, process, engage with situations differently. And I'm to be observant of picking up my own signals, but also picking up other people's signals. Um, and I think that all feeds into my job and helps me do the job I need to do and succeed at that. But it also helps me manage and cope with day-to-day living, which can be really tough.
0: I know that books are a, a big <laughs> part of, of your life. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, I wondered if you could share a few that have had a big, big impact. On, mm.
1: yeah. I, I think books are great because it's a way of engaging with other people but not having to talk to them, <laughs> which is perfect for an introvert. Um, I'd mentioned the one by Susan Cain, another one is The Ice Palace That Melted Away by Bill Stumpf is all about the decline of civility in design. And so he talks about how is as a civil society are we using design in a way that makes our day-to-day world better for people. One of the examples he talks about is um, public toilets. And um, if we don't design public toilets into our city landscape then we exclude a lot of people from getting out of their homes Uh, we exclude older people that need to visit toilets more regularly disabled people parents, you know people with weak bladders if you aren't confident that you can go out for a couple of hours and not need to go to the toilet then you just won't leave your house and that's one of the things and he touches on different things and for me it's one of those books that makes you realise the power of design you know, no matter its flavour, you know, it can really make differences. And then a kind of article that I read that I thought really, again, changed my thinking was, no, you can't have it all. It was one in Harvard Business Review, I can't remember the offer, but it's this idea that you have different parts of your life, so you have your work, you have your sort of self, you have family, you have relationships, I think there's like eight parts, but if you're putting all your time into your career, then you're not devoting yourself to your relationships. If you're trying to make a change, so at the moment I'm very much trying to change my relationship to fitness and how I engage with that, then I can't devote as much time to progressing my work or, uh, I don't know, um, cooking or something like that. So you only have so much time and so much mental energy to push yourself in new directions. So if you're pushing yourself in one way, then you're putting less energy into another thing. And I think it's really, because it basically says, you know, to these Harvard, uh, to these students, you know, who wants to be divorced, or who wants to be a CEO of a company by the time they're 50? All these hands go up. Who wants to be divorced? Who wants to be alienated from their children? Who wants to be obese? Who wants to, you know, all these other health implications that come from High stress, high achieving jobs. And of course nobody wants to be divorced, alienated from their children if they're lucky enough to have them have health problems. But if we don't sleep enough, if we don't exercise enough, if we don't invest time to have conversations with our partners, with our families and our friends, and we put all our energy into succeeding at work, then we're we're not going to be able to have the rest of that life. I think for what I took away from that is about making conscious decisions. So if at this time of my life I'm going to focus here, then I'm not going to focus there, and that's the payoff. And the baseline is you can't have it all, so what are you going to sacrifice at what point? And then I have like complete crushes on books, so my latest craze is The Skill of Life, and it's this different offers, and it's a kind of philosophy meets self-help, and uh, what the one that I've got that I'm reading just now is How to Stay Sane by Philippa Perry. And um, it just looks at the formation of the brain and it kind of picks apart what sanity is and what it means in our lifestyle today. Um, but yeah, I've got far too many books on my bookshelf that I haven't read. Um, and then the other side is my kind of shitty crime novels. I say it's like the really easy reading that you don't need to learn from but you can just consume and i love reading so whether that's books or on my kindle uh yeah there's always some book somewhere uh, being progressed through but yeah. you're starting to read aren't you
0: <laughs> no i'm terrible at reading i yeah i far far prefer podcasts to be honest i find them much easier to digest um yeah i don't know why i just i've never really gotten into the whole act of, of reading, mm-hmm. as much as I'd love to, and I, yeah, I do enjoy it at certain times. It's just not something that I've been able to work into the to the, my routine.
1: So where do you find you get your inspirations or your learning from?
0: A lot of it comes from podcasts, Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I listen to a wide variety of them, from comedians to musicians to just absolute nonsense. Um, to actual real specific design ones, um, I, I found a lot of reassurance that people are just muddling through and doing things their own way and not necessarily knowing whether it will work or not. Mm-hmm. And I think I've had those thoughts quite a few times, and it, it's definitely reassuring that I'm not the only one out there doing that. You do need a bit of luck sometimes just to to get ahead, and that yeah, when people, as we touched on before, as people who appear to be successful are actually probably just in the same boat as you, but Mm -hmm. they're doing some great PR. Um, Yeah.
1: (laughs) One of my... A a phrase that I love is luck is for the prepared mind. And I think if... It goes back to that idea of talent. It goes back to the idea of putting the time in, uh, building relationships, talking about what you need, talking about what you want to do. I think it's easy to write off success as lucky Oh, they were lucky. I've heard that a couple of times. Oh, they were lucky. that She was lucky that she got that job or she was lucky that she got, um, you know, that other thing. And I think I believed that for a long time. But then I, I, I can't remember. Someone said it. It'll be on the Google quotes somewhere. Um, but luck is for the prepared mind. And I really believe that now because the prepared mind is being open, being flexible... Uh, taking on new opportunities, being open to failure, and sometimes that takes off, and sometimes it doesn't. But it's just that returning to it. So, yeah, I think within success, luck is for the prepared mind. Keeps me sane.
0: And I also think it, it comes back to what you, what you said earlier about putting the time in. Mm-hmm. That success will come if you work hard enough. In the majority of cases, yeah. I think that's. That's wrong true in a lot of my experience that try and try again. Yeah. And things will start to happen. People will start to notice mm-hmm. and successful will, will eventually come. I think that's very true.
1: And you can't do it alone. You know, I've never heard of someone who's successful that did it all by themselves and if they say that, they're liars. <laughs> <laughs> like you you can't live all by yourself and you need people to do stuff. I mean, that is reality again.
0: So if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how would they, how would they do it? How would they find out more?
1: Uh, Instagram or Twitter are the two uh, places I tend to be. And just at Kalsal, so Kalsau, so K E L S A U.
0: Okay. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you. Great talking to you.
0: So that was Kate, and thanks very much to her for coming on the podcast. It was a really interesting chat, some really interesting and insightful points there, and plenty of reading material for the future. So if you want to catch her, as she said, it's at Calso on Twitter. And again, please follow Dundee on Twitter and Instagram for updates, and some little teasers for next week. So until then, thanks.